In Eric's words, a great fintech brand is human and makes meaningful connections with consumers. That means it's purpose-led, story-oriented, and customer-centric. Ideally, you want to build a brand around something that you can authentically and consistently stand for. That's the beginning of Rivals Marketing Framework, a marketing agency built by Eric that helps companies think, act, and grow like challengers. Eric Fulweiler used to be the COO and CMO at 11FS, the fintech consultancy based in London. Now he's a founder of his own marketing agency, Rival. This episode is a recorded virtual event we hosted in November through our Slack community. For the first 30 minutes, Eric and I chat about branding and how Rival is helping companies build human brands, as well as tips for marketers who are hiring. Afterwards, we opened the floor to participants to ask questions. The event was great fun, and our plan is to host these types of events once per month, starting from January 2022. You can learn more and stay tuned at fintechmarketing.com forward slash Slack. Let's hear from Eric. Um, Thanks everyone for joining. The plan today is to chat a bit about fintech branding and marketing and Eric's framework at Rival for building a brand. Um, not just fintech brand, but a brand kind of in, in general. And then that's, we're going to chat for about like 30 minutes. Then afterwards, open up the floor to anyone who wants to ask any questions. I've also got a few questions from people in the Slack community. So it uh, should be good to, to kind of go through those. So before like I start, we start talking about branding, I'm sure like everyone here knows who you are, Eric, um, but you recently had a career change and are doing something new. So why don't we start with kind of introducing yourself and, and um, what you're doing at Rival? Yeah, in some ways it was a career change, but as my wife likes to say, I'm the last person to realize that I'd start my own business. So it kind of feels not inevitable, but very natural in a way as well. But yeah, um, so I'm American, but I've been living in London for the last six years. My background is, I guess, kind of three stages startups in the US between New York and San Francisco. Uh, hospitality, real estate, just kind of like, you know, trying to figure things out in the early days of Web 2.0, as we called it then. And then I joined a company called Vayner Media when it was 15 people. It's now 1,500 people, one of the biggest global digital agencies out there. And that kind of started 10 years that I spent in the advertising agency world, always focused on the digital side of things, but brands, creative content, paid media all that stuff. Um, And the last two and a half years, I've been chief marketing and commercial officer at 11FS, which in this community, I'm sure people know. Um, So I ran the media team, the marketing team, and then eventually sales in our consulting division as well. But then I kind of, yeah, I guess realized and had some encouragement and support to go try to do something on my own to take my kind of entrepreneurial tendencies and everything that I've learned over the last 15 plus years and try to try to build something on my own. So that ended up being Rival, which launched now almost four weeks ago. So it's still early. And we are a marketing innovation consultancy. So what that means is that we help businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. So we do a lot of brand strategy, go-to-market strategy, organizational design and capability development. You know, I say we do a lot of we've been we've been in business for four weeks. So it's still early, but Touchwood, it's been going well so far. Um, got a handful of clients on board, starting to bring full-time people on. It's not exclusive to financial services, but as you can imagine with where I'm coming from, 
and also where there's a lot of disruption happening. Like that's where I see us fitting in is into industries where there are incumbents that are being challenged by new entrants. Because what we're trying to do is kind of bring that challenger marketing mindset and model into any business that wants to grow like a challenger. So some of those are startups, but as you can imagine, some of those are incumbent businesses as well. Yeah. And I've been a fan of Fintech Marketing Hub for a while from my days at 11FS. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And um, we've had you on the podcast too. And that was a really cool episode. So yeah, it's great to have you on again. Uh, and from what I understand, what you're doing at Rival is is more, not exactly consulting, but more trying to advise, right? Rather than do outsourced marketing work, right? It's more like, here's how you do it or some examples uh, rather than kind of doing the work for them. Is that right? Yeah. So we still do work. But we don't do execution. Okay. The way I explain it is we're a management consultancy for CMOs. So we're coming in at that research, strategy, training, advisory level. And the training piece, I think, is really important because one of the things I realized having a lot of conversations with senior marketers as I was thinking about setting this up is there's a lot of consultancies out there. And obviously, I'm overgeneralizing. But one of the things I heard pretty consistently is sometimes the best strategy doesn't actually deliver the results and the change you're looking for. So I really want to make sure with Rival that we're equally focused on capability, culture change, if it's like the people side of things. Mm -hmm. So actually that's the foundation for any change. And then you build the strategy or the technology or the go-to-market on top of that. Um, So that's really important for me. We've got this kind of first principle of we try to work ourselves out of a job as quickly as yeah. possible. So when we come in, we're really trying to look at the people first, even if it's a strategic ask, um, you know, what can we do to get as much of our expertise and experience out of our heads and into the people there? Because I think we've done our job well, if after, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months, depending on what the engagement is, they don't need us anymore. So that's the North Star. Yeah, makes total sense. Great. So let's talk about brands. Let's talk about branding. Um, Kind of starting from the beginning, really starting with foundations, what defines a great brand? And yeah, what makes a brand great in your opinion? It's funny. There's a few things going through my head. Honestly, and I'll give some context to this answer, but if it delivers the results that you're looking for, because the way I come at marketing, and in the last six and a half, seven years, counting VaynerMedia, 11FS, and now Rival, my role has been kind of managing director GM. Like I'm, we've done marketing and all those businesses, but I'm responsible for running a business and a PL. And so I think that I come at marketing maybe from a little bit more of a commercial angle, which I, I think there's a lot of ways to kind of grow into a CMO or whatever it is that people in marketing aspire to be in their career. But I do think that having commercial experience is important because at the end of the day, everything you do should be a means to an end to growing the business for the most part. And so, you know, I have this bit of a pet peeve that I talk about sometimes of marketing for the sake of marketing, which happens more in big businesses than it does in small businesses. Cause in small businesses, there's, you know, you have to deliver the results. Otherwise you go out of business, but sometimes in big businesses, you know, there can be marketing that's kind of to impress other marketers or win awards or things that I'm not sure really have an impact on. It's not just the bottom line. It's not just about um, profit. Because I think particularly in the world of today, it's more about um, purposeful, sustainable growth. So you know how you grow is just as important as how much you grow. 
But really the job of marketing is to drive growth of the business. And within that brand is of course a big part, but it all needs to ladder down to that. So I think that's the first thing I would say, which is probably not, if you ask somebody what's important about brand, that's probably not usually where people would go, but I think that's important and maybe something that my perspective is a little bit different on. And then in terms of brands, so I actually just gave a talk on Wednesday Mm -hmm. on how Challenger Banks, it's called the World Social Media Forum, and their theme was all about human brands, humanizing brands. And so they asked me to come in and talk about specifically within the world of financial services, what are challengers doing differently? And that's really where I see Rival trying to sit is at this intersection between what's going on in the startup world and what's going on in the enterprise world. And how do you contrast those things? Because I really believe that any business can and should think and act like a challenger. You don't have to be a startup to have that challenger mentality. Because if you really break it down, what they're doing can in theory be applied within any business. It's not exclusive to being small and young, but being small and young gives you a better perspective on what you need to do to be fully fit for purpose for the world of today, which is fundamentally what challenger marketing means to me. But anyway, in that talk, it kind of focused on it. I'm actually, I'm going to post it. I'm happy to send it over if you want to include it as a link to this or in the show notes when you put it out on the podcast, but I'm going to put it up. And it was about you know, three components or three strategies that I see challenger banks using really well to build a human brand that makes meaningful connections with consumers. And so the first one was being purpose-led. So actually not just standing for something, but actually delivering on what you stand for. I think there's a lot of conversation about brand purpose, but where a lot of businesses get it wrong is one, they either try to create a purpose that doesn't exist internally within the business you know, they think they should take a political stand because everyone else is, or they think it, you know, that's the right thing to do. Sure. And I think there's a role for brands and marketing to play in driving positive change in this world, but you really should only be building your brand about around something that you can authentically and consistently stand for. And then the other piece, I think people fall down or leave opportunity on the table with building a purpose-led brand is they don't take action on it. So they talk the talk, but they don't actually walk the walk. And I think the modern consumer smells inauthenticity and, um, you know, expects that if you, if you put something out there, you got to put your money where your mouth is for people, but also for brands. Um, so that's the first one. And I use the example of TransferWise, kind of having a purpose of not just challenging the traditional FX infrastructure, but actually campaigning or crusading to help people realize they don't even know how banks and all these other companies are charging them and taking advantage of them and all that. Um, so that was the first one, being purpose-led. The second is being customer-centric, which again, sounds so obvious. And it's one of those things that's thrown around a lot. But the example I always give with this is like, you can just tell when you open an app or you go to a website or you start using a product or so you can just tell whether or not they have the culture internally and the and the marketing teams but also the product teams to deliver something that's customer centric it's one of those things you kind of know it when you see it and i really do think that that comes from leadership but the culture internally it's tough to put a process around being customer centric i think it has to come from the way you behave and the things that you say are important so i use an example because the the talk was actually in amman jordan so I was trying to think of some more regional examples. And interestingly enough, and maybe people here know more than I do, I couldn't find a good one for the Middle East, really. 
customer-centric um, customer-centric challenger bank. Challenger bank. There are some, yeah, and I see somebody shaking their head. There are some that are out there that are kind of the, you know, so what we did at 11FS, they're the challenger banks that are built by the incumbent banks. And I won't name names, but you go to those and you're just, it doesn't look and feel like a challenger bank. It looks and feels like an incumbent bank, bank that has a different brands to it. Um, yeah, if anyone knows, it's definitely Jihan, right? Um, well, maybe afterwards you can let us know what she thinks. Yeah, but yeah that's interesting. So I, I use the example of um, Time Bank in South Africa because we're doing a little bit of work down there actually with one of the guys who co-founded it. Um, and I uh, that to me seems like one that's done customer centricity really well um, in the product, but then also the brand. And they just hit 4 million customers in that market. So purpose-led, customer-centric, and then the third example for building a human brand is community-oriented. So if you stand for something, you deliver on people's needs. I think the third component that especially challengers in financial services are doing well is they create community around the brand, which really just means they create a platform for people who believe in what they believe to connect with each other and therefore have it feel more purposeful to them. So that often takes the uh, shape of events, you know, 11FS well before I got there, did a great job of building community around the brand with the events after darks and all that. But the example I used in the presentation was community.monzo.com. So the, you know, like the Reddit forum where they created a way for people to start interacting with each other, but also serve up suggestions about new products or ways that they could do things differently. So I think that angle, that nod towards community is something that I'm trying to think. I can't really think of any examples of incumbents doing that well. So that challengers are really tapping into that um, as a way to build a brand that's more human, more differentiated, more purposeful um, than the incumbents in their space. Okay. Wow. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, so before I, I go on, I just wanted to say, if you've got any questions, anyone attending, feel free to put them in the chat uh, and we'll get to them in like around 15 minutes. But yeah, so I'd love to like kind of go through each of those pillars one by one. But before that, I had a question and I wonder what your thoughts are. Would you say, would you say a brand or a company needs to find product market fit before building a brand or does that happen kind of at the same time? I actually challenge that it they're two separate things. So I've got this slide in this presentation. I, well, I guess I do have it with me. I could pull it up, but it's very simple. So it's kind of like, you know, there's all this growth and disruption happening in the world of banking. Here's what I think is different about challengers versus incumbents coming back to the they're building a product and brand that's fully fit for purpose for the world of today. But one of the things I observed, you know, 11FS had this position that I'm trying to create for rival of being right in the fence between the fintech world and the big bank world and like accepted in both worlds. And so, you know, I was really lucky being part of that team to like really see, you see those worlds coming together and how they're doing things differently. And one of the biggest things that I saw, I'm sure everybody here has seen it or felt it as well, regardless of which side you're on, is these fintechs, these challengers just think about marketing differently. Marketing is not just go to market. It's not, hey, give me the product, give me the sale, give me the business objective, and I'll come up with some communication and how to distribute it. It's integrated. And so this slide shows like traditional incumbent where it's product and then there's narrow and here's marketing. Whereas in challenger businesses and in fintechs in particular, it's like this flywheel of product feeds marketing and marketing feed, feeds product. 
Monzo is a great example. And, you know, Jason Bates, who is a co-founder of Monzo, is also one of the co-founders of 11FS. So spending a lot of time with him. And I actually co-founded Starling as well. He's a product and a marketing guy, but they didn't, they didn't think about it that way. It was, you know, taking a step back, what marketing should do, because I think we get distracted slash excited by the big campaigns and the big ideas and the stuff that is the go-to-market. But really marketing is just about connecting the product to the consumer in a way that drives business growth. And so what that means when you're in NatWest is of course very different than what it means if you're starting a new business today. But if you're starting a new business today, which by the way is how I think challengers should think about things, even if you've been in business for a long time, is that's what lets you know what's fully fit for purpose. It's how would I do it differently if I started it from scratch today? Marketing kind of feeds the product roadmap. The, the marketing team is not just thinking about buying ads or creating ads. They're thinking about what is it, what's happening out there in the world of our customer, in the culture around them, in the context of the world that we can feed or competition that we can feed into the product because the best, the best marketing is a good product um, at the end of the day. So yeah, long-winded way of saying, I do think, I guess I do think you should have product market fit before scaling marketing, but marketing has a role to play in that. The other quick thing I'll throw out that I always like to highlight is, I don't know if this is still a thing, but when I first joined 11FS, which was the first time I was really in the fintech world, there was this thing that a lot of the fintech fintechs in general, but definitely those challenger banks would throw around where they'd say like, we don't do marketing as if it was kind of a badge of honor. And what they meant was they don't do the big ads campaigns. And of course now they do because they're trying to get to scale. But back then we don't do, we don't do marketing, but you do do marketing. Um, sorry, this is the home renovation, <laughs> the lights don't go on, on and off. You do do marketing. You actually do just a different, you know, one of the components of marketing, which is how do you connect the consumer to the product in a way that's going to drive growth by creating product market fit? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, the, the main reason fintech companies are doing a much better job at marketing is because they rely on marketing a lot more than incumbents, um, right? Like as a startup in general, you need marketing to grow, whereas one could argue that maybe incumbents is not as marketing driven. Uh, and so that's why we're seeing a lot more innovation and, and more interesting stuff happening in the fintech marketing space rather than the incumbent marketing space, wouldn't you say? It's interesting because in a way, you could also argue the incumbents need marketing more because they're not getting that, they likely aren't getting the same organic growth because maybe the product market fit isn't there, you know, the, the they're not new to market. They're not creating excitement. They probably don't have that advocacy of like a new product. So I, I do see what you're saying, but I also think that, yeah, I think it, I think it could really go both ways. But in the beginning, I mean, that is that is one of the things that I've seen. And as I was, you know, thinking about what we do with Rival, I think there's a big opportunity because so many so many startups, technology businesses, but definitely fintech, are don't have marketing in the founding team. And I think it's important, even if you don't have a marketer or you're not going to hire a marketer to have the perspective of marketing and go to market in that team. So I think it's, you know, it's important for any business because ultimately, if you boil it down, what drives growth is innovation of product and marketing, those two things together. So that's probably my biggest push is those two things should not be thought of or treated or developed separately. 
if you're the CEO or you're the leader of any size business, I think you should be thinking about how those two things work really closely together from day one or day 1000. So going back to your to your framework, we're talking about purpose, customer centricity, and community. Purpose is an interesting one. Uh, I've noticed purpose works really well when the founder is very involved, maybe at the beginning. But how do you how do you make a, uh, a firm a, a fintech purpose led within all the employees, within all the teams, and maybe not just a founder thing? Yeah, I think a lot of them, a lot of fintechs, a lot of challengers are more purpose-led because it's easier to identify and everybody's bought into what the purpose is because it does come from the founder. It comes from the reason the company was set up to be in with. And if you're a business that's been around for a hundred years and it's got a hundred thousand people, that might be a little bit trickier to do. Although actually, sorry, not to plug my own podcast, but um, our podcast, which I hope you've listened to, I'm into the third episode on Wednesdays with Linda Boff from General Electric. And it's a fascinating conversation. She was a client of mine back in the day. I think she's amazing. And if you just think about how do you, you know, General Electric, a company that's been around for 150 years or whatever it is, and was started for one thing, but now is this mega, you know, conglomerate that, that they're now breaking off into small, like the challenge of that, building a brand and having a consistent purpose and getting everybody bought in. Like, I think that's, I think that's really fascinating. So I think what there's two pieces to that, right? Of what, what your question is. One is figuring out what the brand is or what the brand purpose is, which I do think, like I said, needs to come from within. It's more, more an exercise of excavation than it is construction. It's not building something new. It's digging into what's there. And chances are, I mean, I think in this day and age, chances are most brands have their purpose defined. But if they don't, then I think it's an exercise of going to the founders or going to the leadership team or going to the handbook or the cultural values or, you know, it's probably not something you need to create. It's probably something that you just need to uncover. And then the hard thing is distilling that down into one sentence or one tagline or one statement that everybody can really get and get behind. And then the other side of that, you know, if you've got a team of more than 50 people. I've always found 50 is the tipping point of when it's no longer just like the one crew hive mind thing. You actually need process and structure to get everybody thinking and rowing in the same direction. That's just an exercise in perception and behavior change, which is also what marketing is, by the way, but it's not marketing to an external audience. It's getting people bought into the purpose that you have. So I don't think there's a you know necessarily right way to do that because it's going to depend on the company and the size and the type and the people that are there and the culture and how you go about things like that. But I've always felt that people change within an organization needs to be top down and bottom up. You know, it need it, you need to have the great, here's the thing. All all company meeting, um, you know, email that goes out somewhere that people can go back to to check in on what it is, the top down piece. But then you really need the bottom up as well. You know, I used to do, when I was at VaynerMedia, we only got to about 80 people in London when I was there, but I used to do like every week an office hours, pull in four or five people, not just the people who would like raise their hands, but pull in people to hear what they had to say, the questions that they had, and, you know, try to make sure that I was driving that clarity and alignment. And so I do think that you need to do that bottom up stuff as well and make sure that people, make sure that people are bought in, sure, but also 
sometimes that's where you can get the best feedback and the best ideas of how to maybe do things differently. And I just want to call out, Holly put a um, comment here earlier about how they built a community first, and then the content relates back to what the community needs and asks for. That's kind of similar to what I'm saying in the bottom up, like you create, whether it's that coffee meeting I used to do or the community that Holly created, you create a platform for you to get feedback and you to get input and people ask questions to you. And then that helps steer you in the direction of what you should do. And actually, I think one of the most under leveraged uh, tactics in the world of marketing is just asking your customers what they think. And there's an element of that. That's the whole Henry Ford. If I asked people what they wanted, it would have, it would have been a faster horse and not a car where people always say, well, Steve jobs came up with the iPhone. Sure. Like every once in a while, you're coming up with something so brilliant that you need to force it on people, even if they don't think it's what they want. But 98% of the time, you know, you're not going to be smarter than all the people around you, especially if you're trying to build a product or service for them. So I love that idea of building a community in order to get feedback or even just finding a way to connect with your customers directly and ask them what they think or ask them for ideas. And the added benefit of that is it doesn't happen that often. And people love feeling important. They love feeling like their opinion matters. And so you can actually create, you know, solid advocacy from that as well. I think that leads quite well into the second pillar, which is customer centricity. And I mean, we talk a lot about this in the fintech marketing world, be customer centric. It's one of the USPs of fintechs versus incumbents. And what does it mean to be customer centric? I think you've kind of just mentioned it in the way that uh, if you build a community, like what Holly is talking about, you are by default customer centric because you are talking to them every single day and you understand you can understand your customers inside out. I mean, just with our own fintech marketing Slack community, being able to chat to fellow fintech marketers all the time, it helps understand the problems that fintech marketers face so much better and more easily just chatting to them every single day. And so, so yeah, I mean, community helps with the, that part of it, customer centricity. What would you say to, to fintech companies that want to be customer centric and and maybe don't have that community aspect? Do you say just build a community, just start a forum? How? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that you... Um, I think community is a huge opportunity to build a more impactful brand. I think it's really hard to do. It takes a lot of time and effort. You know, you, you all know this with the community that you're building at FinTech Marketing Hub. Um, and it's one of those things I think you got to be prepared to do it better than 98% of the people out there if you're going to do it at all, because it's so easy to get lost in the sea of, you know, I don't know how many groups I'm added to on LinkedIn. Mm. It's, it's really hard to do well, but that's also why there's a lot of opportunity to do it. So I don't think that it is necessary for being customer centric. Okay. Honestly, this, this sounds silly and I'd love to you know hear from people and and maybe they can help me build on this, but I honestly think that it just comes down to prioritizing it. You know, like I I think a lot of the businesses that aren't customer centric, it's because they're not, they haven't made it a priority. They've made the priority, you know, the next quarter's returns or, uh, you know, the target that they have to hit to get their bonus or the pressure that they're getting from their boss or another stakeholder to do X, Y, and Z. Like it just gets lost. It's so easy for the customer to get lost when you're head down grinding day to day, week to week. And I'm not saying those things aren't important or that you don't have to deal with them. Like, of course you do. But I think the companies that are able to deliver on being customer centric, 
uh, customer centric are the ones that usually have leaders that are just adamant about you never lose it. That the um, there's a book that came out recently that compiled all of Jeff Bezos's writings from when he first started Amazon. So like all of this uh, annual shareholder letters and a lot of the public speaking that he did. And it's amazing how consistent he was with the vision of the company from day one, like before the internet was really a thing, he saw this happening and also how consistent he was with the cultural pillars of the company and customer being customer centric was one of them. You know, they always had, they had that thing where, um, in any meeting, they'd leave a chip, they'd put an, an extra chair in the room to represent the customer. And we've got this thing at Rival, you know, the team's small and we're remote, so we can't do mm-hmm. like an yeah. empty Zoom window. I don't think, although that would be interesting. But we have, you know, we're trying to reach CMOs or senior marketers, but we have one in particular that we've created. It's like this persona named Gene. And so when we're thinking about content or we're thinking about the offerings that we want to be developing, say, you know, what would Gene think? What would Gene do? Would this help Gene? And so I'm going to be adamant about for Rival, making sure that we're consistently customer centric as hopefully we scale. But I think it comes down to that, like what gets prioritized gets done. And I think a lot of, in a lot of organizations, that stuff can just get lost. One of the things we did at 11FS, because like, you know, that's a startup and a scale up, but again, it's just so easy for the customer to get lost day to day is we had what we call the monthly dog food meeting. So we get the whole, this was just from marketing or media and marketing because they were two teams together. Every month we'd get together and kind of pretend that we were customers or financial service professionals. That's who we were building our content for. And so we would click around the website. We'd listen to the podcast. We'd go on our social. We'd do general searches and just spend an hour in the shoes of our customer. So I was like that as kind of a hack or a tactic, but it really comes down to, do you make it a priority? And do you bring that priority to life through rituals that people can kind of buy into and do consistently? Yeah, I really like the different rituals in there. It seems like there's a lot of different ways of kind of keeping the customer front and center. There's a lot more questions I could ask you, but I know people here want to ask other questions and we've got quite a few in the chat and some others in the Slack group. Uh, So I saw one from, I think I want to start from the top. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey asks, when it comes to B2B fintech companies, do you think being purpose-led is like, how is that? Is it different? And in what ways? I I think it is different because, you know, a B2B business, again, it depends. And there's some B2B businesses that kind of toe the line but the smaller your audience is or the fewer people you have to reach to deliver the growth goals you're going after, the more likely it is that your business or your growth strategy is sales-led versus marketing-led. And that's why I think there's a huge opportunity for B2B businesses to be more brand-led in how they approach growth simply because most other companies aren't doing it or aren't doing it well. 11FS is a great example. You know, Those guys, again, well before I got there, David, Jason, Simon, they're very brand oriented. And so they, you know, saw, I don't know, I don't even know if they saw the opportunity. I think they just started doing things that they thought people would find interesting. And it really stood out because the Accentures, the Deloitte's, the McKinsey's of this world don't really do content like that. And some of them are trying to do it more now. So I do think there's an opportunity to be more brand led, but I don't, I don't think that every business has to be on a mission to change the world. 
again, to my point about authenticity, some are, but I think you see a lot of that trend hopping and these businesses trying to force a political or a social agenda into their brand purpose. And that's great. And I'm glad that things are going in that direction. Like I said, I'm glad that we're starting to harness more. You know, a lot of this is driven by consumers, actually. You know, people, marketers, like everybody, you're trying to do your job better and you respond to what people are asking for. So I think there's a lot of pressure being put on businesses and marketers from consumers. And there's stats out there that support this saying, yeah, I'll spend more money with a company that is supporting a cause that I care in, or I won't with a company that's not. So I do think people want to see it, but it doesn't have to be, it needs to be something that is, that is purposeful to you. So 11FS was about changing the fabric of financial services. It wasn't necessarily, a, you know, it wasn't like a social cause or anything like that. And I think there is an element of it there. I guess what I'm saying, Jeff, it's a really good question. And where my head goes is I don't think everybody needs to, you know, drop everything they're doing and try to come up with this, you know, super high level brand purpose. But I do think it's really important to know what you stand for, why your business exists beyond the product or service that you're offering. Because if there's none of that, then it really just comes down to the quality of the product and the price point. And I don't think that's really the business that you want to be in, or you're going to leave a lot of opportunity on the table. Because people increasingly, and you know, we exist in B to B to C and B to B worlds. For the most part, you're either B to B marketer or B to C marketer. But that's not how people exist. People are just humans, and they might buy from businesses, and they might buy from, um, they might buy for their business, and they might buy for their consumers. And the expectations on branding it goes between those worlds. So as more B to C brands are being purposeful, I think the expectation from B to B buyers is going to get affected by that as well. It's the same thing. You know, everybody talks about the Netflix effect. You know, now that the, the experience of Netflix, where the content's personalized, it's super easy to find anything you want, that has had an impact on what people expect of products outside of entertainment or OTT. Yeah, that's a good example. And I think it's a very good question because, especially in the B2B space, there's, you know, there's some sectors that get quite saturated that are getting quite saturated. I'm just thinking open banking providers, for example. And when a market is saturated um, and everything is competing on features and, and pricing, what do you have? You know, you need that brand. Maybe you do. Do you need, is brand a good uh, differentiating point when, when a market is saturated? What else have you got? Yeah, right? for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, I, I do think coming back to the world of fintech and banking in particular, consumer banking in particular, you know, the products certainly help to differentiate some of those early challenger banks, but a lot of the incumbents have caught up or are starting to, ca- to catch up, but I don't think they're catching up on the brand side yet. And I think that's harder. It's harder to kind of pivot a brand like a NatWest than it is a product mm-hmm. like a NatWest. Yeah. And so I think as long as they can say consistent with it, I do think that's a competitive advantage for the Monzos and the Revoluts of this world. Yeah, and also you can copy features and benefits, but you can't really copy a brand, right? So it's a very, it's like a priceless USP. Um, Jihan has a a good comment here on on purpose and, you know, your own employees and building it within the team. Uh, Jihan, would you like to kind of, yeah, unmute and do you want to like talk about, yeah, that that comment that you just put in? Hello, Eric. How are you? Good, how are you? I've been listening to you for the last God knows how many months. I'm so happy now that I actually know how you look like. That's good. 
No, my comment was mainly about employees. Uh, so as an ex-marketer myself, I think one thing we fail to remember is that employees are key and they're actually, they actually know what our clients want more than we do in a way because they are our clients. Yeah. So my, my comment was like, it's a plea to please focus on employees as well before you go out, get your house in order, get the product right internally, let them help you to create it and then go out. And and, um, and that would mostly be applied for scale-ups, not just startups. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really great point. And actually, if you think about it, startups are doing that too. It's just, they don't need to really think about it because when the company's 15 people or 50 people, you just kind of naturally are having those conversations and you're naturally getting that buy-in and alignment before you go out to the world with something. So it's happening or for the companies that are doing it well, it's happening. It's just when you're in a bigger business, I think you need to be a little bit more intentional and it takes a little bit more effort to get a thousand people aligned with something and bought into something than it does, you know, 10. But also there's an opportunity there because you've got a thousand people that can give you input mm-hmm. on it as opposed to just 10. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Mauricio also has a really interesting comment and he says that um, observation is often maybe more effective as a source of insights rather than talking directly. I wonder if Mauricio is here and if you would mind unmuting and maybe uh, expanding on that comment. I don't know if Mauricio hears me. Yes. Yes, I'm here. Yeah, no, it's, it's just it's just that because uh, Eric, you made a, a a comment before about asking uh, customers directly what they think or what they want, and so I'm not saying that's not the right approach. Yep. I'm just thinking that sometimes observing their natural behaviors in, in their natural contexts might be a little bit more effective. Yeah, I I totally agree. It's a great point, and you're always going to get you know when you there's always those biases. Um, woven into when you ask somebody to answer a question specifically versus what they would actually do. It's actually one of my favorite Wikipedia pages, Cognitive Bias. You should check it out. Unbelievable. Unbelievable how many there are um, that we're not even aware of. And, and, And yeah, and actually, you know, we used, I think whether you use the formal framework or not, or you just, you know, the best products are usually built with this jobs to be done methodology, which basically just means people buy a product or service to solve a problem in their life. So it's the whole thing of people don't buy a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole in the wall. And so I think that, um, you know, a lot of the products that we built at 11FS and how I'm, again, at a different scale, trying to think about what we're doing at Rival is trying to interact and ideally observe people and what they do, not just what they say. Mm -hmm. So I really like that point. Okay, thanks. Yeah, me too. Um, Annie also has um, an interesting question about Rival, uh, your own go-to-market and branding strategy. Annie, would you mind unmuting and um, also yeah, talking about what you're asking there? Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, my question is, if you didn't have your personal network, you know, the brand that you've already built over the past, you know, few years, you're, and you, let's say you couldn't use your name, how would you approach the, your branding strategy? <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. If it you wouldn't go to be the, the major focus. <laughs> yeah, totally. If you go to the Ravel website, you won't find my name on there, which 
you know, I'm debating that with a couple people. And I think as the team grows, we probably will put in a team section. But the reason for that is I want to build a brand. I don't, and, and my brand, of course, hopefully will grow as part of that, but it needs to be about the brand rival and not, not me. And that's because I, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to get into the consulting world, of course. And I, from me, I want to build a company. That's what I like to do. That's what I think I'm relatively good at. So I want to build something at scale. And in order to scale something, it can't be dependent on you, ironically. I like to say that like what you should try to do as a boss or a CEO is almost try to make yourself redundant, work your company and your culture and your systems to a place where they don't need you. And then you can continue to play offense and continue to grow the business. So in terms of how I've approached it, a lot of it comes down to scalability and there's so much in there, not just the brand, but the scalability of the brand from day one, I wanted it to be rival, not Eric Fulweiler Consulting. Or anything like that for that for that point, and then in terms of the go to market, got a got a whole strategy and deck on that mm-hmm. as well as you can imagine. But I, I think about it in three stages. So you're right, Andy. Like the lot of a lot of the business that we're doing in the early in this stage, mm-hmm. think of it in kind of three stages is network. It's my network. I have a couple advisors, investors on board. It's their network. So it's relationships that were pre existing or sometimes second degree. Yeah, definitely second degree connections as well, but that can only scale so far. I think it can scale decently far at this stage, but why I'm putting so much time and effort into the content, and I'm trying to think of it as like rival media almost, is because that's the second stage of growth. I'm hoping that as that content starts to get distributed through the world of marketing, that starts to bring the market to us of senior marketers that want to think and act more like challengers. And so that would be the second stage of growth is actually more inbound of people knowing what we stand for, hopefully finding value from this content that we're putting out. So I have a I have a whole roadmap of the next 12 months, some of the things that we're going to do on the content side, and that's going to be really key. And again, that can scale very far. But the third piece of it, is actually not even marketing. And there's other things that we're doing, like, you know, we're doing paid media. Um, we're doing some kind of like PR, like stuff on the earned side as well. But the third level of scalability for me is actually building rival to a level where I can hire other people to sell it. So eventually have a sales team. And actually in this, there's not too much of this out there yet, but what I want to do with, with rival is actually create an ecosystem of businesses where consulting is the hub that sits in the middle and helps to fund some of these businesses, but also helps to provide the insights by working with a lot of senior marketers on what their problems are to identify products that we can build and spin out in separate business units. And that's you know one of the reasons that product businesses get valued more than services businesses is they're more scalable. They can be sold by a sales team. You can build something that a lot of people will buy as opposed to it having to be bespoke for everybody. So that's something on my mind is those three stages of now it's a lot of network, Next, I hope it will be content. And then hopefully eventually we get to a stage where, you know, sales team is infinitely scalable, whereas the other two are a little bit harder. I mean, to me, the the content piece and the go-to-market piece, and this is my one of my fundamental philosophies overall about modern marketing, is I think you need to focus on how do you add value to the audience you're trying to reach in a world where attention is so competitive. 
Like there's almost no such thing as captive attention anymore. And I think that's one of the biggest things that separates challenger marketers from incumbent marketers. If you think of the cliche, you know, I was talking to somebody recently who was saying they watched a lot of Mad Men. I was like, you'd be amazed at how much this industry still works that way. There's so many people that still assume if you create an ad, people will watch it. It's just not the case. You know, I've got this point of like, I don't think attention spans have shortened. I just think people have more options for how they spend their time. So they're not going to watch your shitty content if they don't want to, if they don't find it interesting. So I think that's why it's so important to focus on adding value. And then from a tactical perspective, the other element of that is, okay, you need to create content that's valuable for people, but then try to find ways of doing that that's differentiated, that's something people aren't going to get somewhere else, and also do it in places where you can reach the attention of your audience cheaply or more effectively than your competitors are doing. So kind of attention arbitrage, if you will. So you know, I think, I think podcasts still have some arbitrage, but definitely less than uh, five years ago. So I'm trying to think of, I haven't really cracked it. I'm bullish on email though, as a channel that I think is kind of underrated right now. Um, and also doing virtual events well. So I'm thinking about a lot of things, but it's, I think it's those three things. It's how, it's how do you add value? How do you differentiate it? And then how do you find the attention arbitrage from a tactical perspective? That's what I'm thinking about. You mentioned uh, you're, you're trying different channels. What about video? We actually had, this was a question from the, the Slack group, but basically what, what do you know about video and what, do you th- what, what should marketers know about video? And what are you yeah. advising to your clients about video? Yeah, um, I'm starting to think about video. So we're, uh, I'm using video more as a secondary content channel. Um, I'm not quite saying that right. So I, I think about this, um, I think a lot of people do, but this concept of a content factory. So I think in order to stay competitive as a brand, in order to maximize the value that you can bring to your audience, you need to think about creating content in primary and secondary formats, meaning, and this is what we do, the podcast is a big focus for us, Scratch. And so when we record the podcast, we then also record video on it and put it up on YouTube. And you know, I don't know, it's, there's going to be a lot more people listening to the podcast than there will be on a video, but why not put it out there? And so I think thinking about this, this concept of a content factory of the podcast is the raw material content. But then there are all these secondary formats that you can create. And if I have more time, and I'm starting to bring people on board to help with this from an editorial and content and production perspective, you can also turn that into quote cards and you can turn it into snippets and you can turn it into an email newsletter if you wanted. So I think maximizing the impact of the content you create is really key with that content factory type of model, thinking of it like an assembly line as well. Like repurposing. Yeah, repurposing. Yeah. yeah, but 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 trying as much as possible to adapt it to the to the to the um context of the channel. Sure. So for example, our YouTube yeah. videos of the podcast, like they've got some design, they've got some motion put in there. So like they're somewhat adapted. And then to your question about video, I guess that's what I'm saying is like right now I'm using it more as a secondary yeah. channel. Like I'd love to put this up on our YouTube. I did a talk at Imperial that I'm going to try to put up on our YouTube, but I do think there's an opportunity to do something intentional and purposeful for video. And one of the things I like about video that I also like about podcasts is if I had to sit down and write a deck or a white paper about the topics that we're talking about today, it would take me six hours or whatever. But you know, we can just sit down and press record 
And sure, maybe it's a little bit more all over the place, but it's it takes less time to produce, which means that we can then go produce more content as well. You mentioned adding value, and this is this is like a big theme in, in fintech and customer centricity. Uh, and I totally agree. But in my own explorations of adding value, because sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a nebulous concept. What does adding value really mean? Yeah. In my in my kind of exploration or my kind of experience. Adding value is understanding pain points and then trying to create content around those specific pain points. So it doesn't, so if your customer's pain point is taxes, doing their own self-assessment at the end of the year, don't create content about, I don't know, investing in the stock market. I mean, sure it's relevant, but it's not relevant to your audience. So if you're going to add value, then create content on those really specific pain points. Would you mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? What do you think? Yeah, I would. I think that's the ideal way to do it is that you have a clear understanding of what your audience wants to hear from you. And you can put that out there in a way that's relevant, but differentiated and actionable. That's actually the three kind of pillars of our content strategy. Try to be relevant, differentiated, and actionable. Because I think there's a lot of marketing stuff out there that's too high level or too buzzy and it doesn't, and to what I was saying about how we're trying to do our consulting engagements differently and work ourselves out of a job, it doesn't matter if it doesn't have the impact on your business. You know, if I say 97 things today, but none of them actually land for people to do things differently, it almost doesn't matter. But I'm hoping that some of those can actually be actionable for people. So that's a lot of what, we, what we're thinking about as well. But yeah. I was, sorry, I just lost my thought for a second, but I remember what I was going to say. The other piece of it is, to what I was saying before, which is essentially, I think quantity is just as important as quality. Yeah. And I push myself and others on the quantity piece because I think it just, it doesn't get thought of that way. You know, we're still coming from, we're still coming from that mad men type of world where like, it's about the idea the perfect piece of content, some organizations more than others. But if you look at the landscape of attention today and how competitive it is, quantity, you need a lot of content to not only stand out and hopefully break through, but also to get data back on what works and what doesn't. So I think, you know, you need quality content, of course, and maybe it's 5149, it's not 5050, but I think most people are thinking 9010 quality quantity. So that's why I push the quantity piece so hard. And so one of the things that I try to do, and I think is a strong pillar of a modern content marketing framework, is this concept of capturing and not creating, meaning you need to go create the big campaign or the thing you need to do around what somebody's being at. Like sometimes you do need to create things that are bespoke and oftentimes they would be more impactful, but there's so much content left on the table, left on the cutting room floor, the sawdust of the content factory, if you will, that you're talking about or thinking about week to week anyway. For example, this conversation, I could probably write nine different blog posts about the stuff that we've talked about. Am I going to go capture that? as raw material to produce something or not. So sometimes that idea of, can you think more like a journalist than an advertising creative of like, all right, what am I talking about? Or what are people talking about within inside the organization? One of my big things at 11FS was people, we've got amazing minds in this organization. There's so much value trapped within these walls because we're not capturing it and putting it out in the world. Sure, let's come up with a big idea to do a documentary or whatever. But like, how do we just get more people on camera? How do we get more people on the podcast? How do we get more people writing articles? So um, I do think you should 
try to focus in on what your audience is saying that you need. But oftentimes, if you can create that unlock of like, let's create a platform or a system to document more of what you're thinking or doing or what's going on in the halls of your organization, I think there's a ton of opportunity and value there as well. Well, that's where you're, we're, go- we're going back to becoming a media company, essentially, right? Yeah. Every company is becoming a media company. I think Holly brings a good point, uh, brings up a good point where she says that kind of in financial, you're staying kind of close to home, which is Instagram. What do you think of maybe the counterpoint, which is own one channel or one medium and do it really, really well and just focus on that instead of repurposing across 10 different channels? I guess the way that I think about it is, well, first of all, going back to something that's maybe more philosophical than marketing, I think usually the answer is both, not either or. Okay. That's just usually the case. Like usually it's not black and white, it's gray. Usually it's not do this or that thing. It's, you know, and and actually framing that differently, I think there's a ton of opportunity left on the table when people assume they need to do one thing or the other, as opposed to trying to find a way to do both. So for example, the pod, like our podcast, Scratch, I think it would have been easy to say, okay, we're going to go do a podcast. Why not add the video as well? Like, sure, it's not like, not going to blow anybody's mind, our video strategy of capturing, but like, why not? Why not do both instead of either? So I think there is something where sometimes it's okay to have the, let's just replicate this and put it out there, the keep the lights on the baseline thing, as long as it's not taking too much of your time and attention. And especially for a platform like YouTube, which is the second biggest search engine in the world. And our content is not time sensitive. Like these topics of what we're discussing with these CMOs, it's going to be relevant five years from now as much as it is next week. So why not? And then I'm also a fan of kind of, if you've heard of like the 70-20-10 framework or some type of framework that, and that framework basically says, I think it was Coca-Cola or IBM or somebody came up with this framework back in the day of 70% of your time, attention, resource, focus, should go into the things you know work really well, tried and true. 20% should go into what you think is going to be the next thing to be tried and true. And then 10% should kind of be your big ideas. We're going to test this, probably not going to work, but if it does, it'll be amazing. So I think coming up with some type of framework to make sure, again, it's what I was saying about both, not either or, that you're not just doing the things you know work right now, because eventually they're not going to work as well because it'll get more competitive. You'll lose the arbitrage. So many things can happen. You need to be planning for the future while protecting the present. So you got to find the balance of both of those. But I do think it's about both, not just one or the other. Yeah, that's a really good framework. I'd actually never heard of that, but um, that's really cool. I kind of wanted to ask you, unless anyone has any other questions, I really wanted to ask you about hiring just because uh, I know this is kind of a a topic on a lot of fintech marketers' minds at the moment. There's great resignation, war on talent, whatever you want to call it. Um, it seems that it's quite hard to hire nowadays. I don't know if you've personally experienced this, but I'm wondering if you've got any kind of thoughts on hiring in the fintech marketing space in 2021, 2022, and what can fintech marketers do to kind of attract the, the right talent, essentially? So when we were thinking about setting up Rival, you know, to everything I was saying about, I think being a challenger is thinking from scratch for the world of today. That was one of the prompts that I gave to someone who was helping me think about the people and the operation side of things is if you knew nothing about how a company was run before, you know, at this point, I think it was September, September, 2021, how would you do things differently? If you don't assume that people need to be in the office, that people need to work nine to five, 
you know, that people need to be whatever, how, how would you do things differently? And so for us, where we landed is we're a remote first company. We've got this whole pillar about um, undervalued talent. I think there's so much talent in this industry, in any industry, that is underappreciated or hasn't gotten the opportunities they deserve because of where they are in the world, because of where they got brought up, because of the job they had before, because of how they look, because of what they believe in, whatever it is. And so we're really trying to create um, a culture that gets rid of those things so that we can just cast the widest net possible. So I think a lot of companies, if you're not remote now, you probably can't go remote, but that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Like, just think about it. If you have to fish in the talent pool of greater London versus the world, you know, think about how much more talent there is out there. So that's a big one. I mean, the recruitment thing is hard. It's the most important job that anybody has to do. It is the single biggest factor in determining the success or failure of a business. And it's inherently flawed. And that's the other thing I would look at is you need more candidates in the pipeline, but I also think it's so important to get the interview and the hiring process right. There's some, I wish I could remember the exact statistic, but Google did a big study a while ago about interview process. And they found that, you know, the correlation between how well somebody does in an interview and how well they do in a job is like unbelievably low. It's like below 30%. I think it was like 15% or something like that. And there are things you can do to try to make that better. But the biggest impact was actually, you know, giving somebody a test or an interview, you know, an assignment to do something. And so I think, I think that's a big thing to look at as well as like, how well are you hiring? Not just how much are you hiring or how many people do you have in the pipeline? I wish I had an answer on the, um, on the, you know, what can you do to find more talent besides that huge opportunity of being able to hire people in different talent pools. It's tough, but I do think some of the things that we've talked about today actually apply to hiring and recruitment as well. If you're putting out content about what you stand for, that's purpose-led, that's customer-centric, that's building a community, that's going to bring the people that believe in that to you. And yeah, we've been talking about them focused on customers or clients, but I think it's just the same as people. You know, again, I love NFS and hopefully this ends up being the same for Rival. A lot of the benefit of the content we put out is it brought the talent yeah. to us as well as the clients. So I think all this feeds into a strong employer brand and recruitment and hiring strategy as much as it does a marketing and growth strategy. I think what you said about going remote is a big part of that. And what you just mentioned, using content, like in my mind, as a content marketer myself, content is to acquire customers. But now we're seeing more and more content to acquire talent, which I think is really interesting. And I've seen yeah. uh, Move, for example, does this. It's a B2B uh, payments API company. And they write a lot of like new employees, write a blog post about why they joined Move. Yeah. And apparently this has attracted talent. Those articles have attracted talent. And I think that's really interesting. Content is like really at the center of nearly every aspect now as a business. It's super exciting. Cool. Well, uh, before we finish off, just wondering if anyone wants to comment in or I don't know, say something to Eric, say hi or say thanks or add in a comment. If not, anyone? Yeah. And um, I don't know if you're going to center around my details or if everybody's on the invite, but would love to connect um, with anyone. You can find me on LinkedIn or Eric, E-R-I-C at wearerival.com. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks so much, Eric, for coming on. Really appreciate yeah. it on a Thanksgiving and on a Friday night. And thanks to everyone for coming on also. It was great to chat and um, it was great to talk about fintech and fintech brands. So yeah, and good luck with everything at Rival. Look forward to seeing what you'll be doing in the next year or so. We'll definitely be 
be keeping track of you and, and checking in. Thank you. Sure. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Have a good Friday night, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find all the information and show notes over at fintechmarketinghub.com and then click on podcast. We've also got a fintech marketing Slack community where you can meet fellow fintech marketers and founders, ask podcast guest questions ahead of a show and attend exclusive online events with industry experts. We'd love to see you in there, hear your feedback and learn about the challenges you're currently facing in your role. To join, head to fintechmarketinghub.com forward slash Slack. That's all for today. See you in the Slack.